0: And good morning. Please be opening your Bibles this morning to John chapter 18. You do need your Bibles because my words carry no power and no authority. Amen. Only th- <laughs> Thank you, Michael. Any power or authority that are behind anything that any of us say is the Word of God itself. That's the power. That's the seed. That's the only thing that's effectual. Anything that we say outside of that needs to be discarded. Amen. So in John 18, I want to point out that many people who are wrong are not wrong on purpose. Think of the medical field. How many people died because of bloodletting? Are you familiar with bloodletting? Uh, they wrongly reasoned at that time that this person's sick. His blood must be bad. Oh, there's, there's the logical fallacy, but he's sick. His blood must be bad. So, given their logic, what they, two things they believe? let's drain his blood so he can live. George Washington actually died from bloodletting. Uh, History tells us that they took blood from the former president four times in a 21-hour period trying to help him get well. In total, they removed 2.365 liters, which is 40% of his blood, and he was already sick. If you didn't know, that's not good. Unsurprisingly, he died. Most historians agree that Washington was bled to death and that he didn't die due to his illness. These doctors were not wicked men, but they were wrong. They wanted to help, but they were actually hurting. And the results were catastrophic. When we think of the medical profession, we get many head-scratchers. Cigarettes were prescribed for asthma and encouraged for pregnant women. Lobotomies for seizures and personality control. Uh, ingesting intentionally ingesting tapeworms for weight loss, arsenic compounds were ingredients uh, in many uh, bombs and tablets to help if you couldn't sleep. You know, so you can take melatonin or you know some good arsenic. What's my point? Many people who are wrong mean well. That's true in real life and not real life. That's true in just physical life, and that's true about biblical doctrines as well. People aren't always, they're not wrong on purpose. These doctors were not wicked men, but they were wrong, and the results were catastrophic. And in the same way, being wrong on theology can have catastrophic results as well for, for individuals, for souls, for entire societies and cultures, for nations. One such doctrine is two-kingdom theology. They advocate for Christians to concentrate on the souls of men and not busy themselves with the world. Christians should shun power and influence. They should just winsomely proclaim that Jesus died for sinners. All sinners are equal, so who's to say who's right or wrong on issues? But we all need Jesus, you know. Let's not get down in how we should live or what's good or bad or right or wrong. We just need Jesus. We should not advocate for policy because who are we to tell people how to live? Obviously, I taught against that view last week, and this week I want to handle one of the primary proof texts that people use for this likely well-meaning position, but but poorly reasoned. In John 18.36, you'll be familiar with it, my kingdom, who's heard it, is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Now what do we do with that? The answer is keep reading. You've got to read before and you've got to read after. You can't take snippets of Bible text, ripped from context, and think that you're going to understand it rightly. A text out of context makes a pretext. It'll make you wrong every time. So I'm going to uh, be looking at John 18:28 all the way through 19:15. I'm not going to read that all at once, and obviously it's not going to be an in-depth exposition this week. We'd be here until the sun rolls. I don't think any of us want that. Um, what I intend to do, though, is a reading of these verses that sets the textual and the historical context so that we can better understand what's going on. And if we better understand what's going on, we can better understand what Jesus actually is saying because he means something. It also I'll also be looking at a section from John 11:45 through 12:40. So if you have something to stick in your Bible, we're going to flip to those two this morning. When we get to chapter 18, Jesus has be- uh, Judas has betrayed Jesus. And the Jews have arranged a Roman cohort to accompany Judas to have Jesus arrested. And Peter wanted to fight. Peter is, as I like to say, about the thump and heads, right? And in John 18, uh, 10 through 13, he had a sword and he drew it out. He actually cut off the high priest's slave's ear, his right ear. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into your sheath. The cup that the Father has given me shall I not drink it. I love that boldness. He understands his mission and he's submitted to what God has for him. He knows what he's doing. He knows what the prophets have foretold and he's not trying to get out of it. So the Roman cohort and commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. After a brief questioning by Caiaphas, we get to the section to highlight something that we pointed out last week. And that's the subjugation of the Jews to the Romans. The, you had the Jewish authority. They've been overcome by nations hundreds of years ago, and that's all changed hands. But now they're still under Rome. They're a nation, but they're a nation under an empire, the Roman Empire. So the Jews, they have governors, and they have kings, they have tetrarchs. Uh, But then there, all that is under the Roman emperor, the Roman Caesar. Submission to Rome is symbolized, if you look, in John 18, 28. And they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium. Caiaphas was the chief priest of the Jews. The high priest had charge over the temples, finances over administration, and maintained order as the recognized political head of the whole nation. But they didn't ultimately have any authority to try anyone to have them put to death. They had to go higher because they're under Rome. So they take him from Caiaphas to the praetorium, a higher court, so they can have a greater punishment on Jesus. The praetorium was the residence of the Roman governor. And in the case of the Judean providence, there was a praetorium in both Caesarea and in Jerusalem due to the Roman capital being at Caesarea. But the additional importance of maintaining a Roman presence in Jerusalem because you had these little factions and these little sects of people who didn't like being under Jewish rule. They were were the uh, zealots. And they would cause problems and they would stir up little uprisings. And they actually... We're going to have to put someone right in the middle of Jerusalem because some of these religious fanatics actually think they're going to overthrow Rome. So they actually had a praetorium there to keep things peaceful and to keep order in Jerusalem. Verse 28, you get a meaningless ritualistic claim of superiority by these Jews, though. They lead Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium. In verse 28, you see it was early. And they themselves didn't enter the praetorium because it was early in the morning and they would be defiled for the whole day in their religious practices. They didn't want to be defiled so they could take the the Passover. But these people, they wanted a religious life that was separated from their regular life. They were fine being under Roman rule, but they still wanted to have their little religion where, hey, we get to go and we get to be together and be special, different, separate people in our religious circles and be leaders and have their... but we're not going to worry ourselves with Rome. We're just going to willfully and joyfully be under their submission, be, be, be under their authority. They wanted to practice their elitist religion while under Roman rule. So even if Jesus was right and really was the Messiah that was promised, that was going to gain universal dominance and overthrow the Roman Empire, they didn't want any part of it. You see that in John twelve forty two through 43 earlier. Even amongst the rulers of the Jews, many believed on Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they'd be put out of the synagogue. For they love the praises of men more than the praises of God. If God has something better for us, it doesn't matter. I don't want something better for us. I want what we have because what we have is comfortable. That's what's going on with them. Does that sound familiar to people today? And then you get the questioning from the Roman governor in verse 29. So Pilate comes out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They and pass, they're passing off the responsibility. Well, If, he wasn't a, if, if this man were not an evildoer, then we wouldn't have delivered him to you. He, he's wicked. You take care of it. Take our word for it. He needs to be judged. He needs to be punished. And there you see next in verses, verse 31, a pagan denial of absolute truths. Pagans care about power and control, but not about truth. Listen to what Pilate says. Pilate says to them, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. Now, there's a big difference in how Christians think of the law and how secularists think of the law. You know how we think of the law? The law is God's law. It's immutable. It's eternal. It never ends. It is what is right and wrong. It's how evil should be punished. It, it's always what is right is always right. What is wrong is always wrong. And It's fixed in the nature and character of God. But pagans don't look at it that way. Well, we can make laws and we can change laws. What was law today doesn't necessarily matter. We're evolving and we're getting better with the times. We're gonna, and you, you can have your little laws and your little jurisdictions, but as long as we keep power, that's fine. That's all, that's all Pilate cared about. We see it again later in John 18. Just a little later, Pilate said, So you're a king, and Jesus answered. We'll get to this in a little bit. You say correctly, I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. See the difference between your law and the truth? Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said, What is truth? No belief in anything actually transcendent. When he had said this, he went to the Jews and said, I find no guilt in him. And then you see this, this submission to Rome stated. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. But the Jews say, We're not permitted to put anyone to death. Not, pre- not permitted by whom? What they say? They we're not permitted by the Romans. Once again, it's that willful, we're, we're under their willing submission to this Roman government. The Jews were willing subjects of the Roman government. But also in this text that we, we looked at here, their subjugation of the Jews to the Romans. We need to have that in our mind. That that's, that's in this background. But then we see the sovereignty of God over, over this entire narrative of everything that's going on. That's in verse 32. You have an allusion to the cross and the Son of Man here that's kind of veiled. You have to, that's the reason we're going to go back and grab it from chapter 11. But the Jews said to Pilate, we're not permitted to put anyone to death to fulfill... The word of Jesus which he spoke signifying what kind of death that he was about to, that he was about to die. When, Jesus, when had Jesus spoken about his death in John's gospel and what exactly did he say? We need, to, we need to know that so we can understand what's going on here, don't we? So back up with me. That's why we're going to go back to John twelve thirty three. That's actually where it quotes it. But... Let's walk through some context again to get to that statement. In John 11, 45 through 53. You in John 11? All right. John 11, 45. Therefore, see that, therefore, because Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. So the context is Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And because of that, many of the Jews came to Mary and saw what Jesus had done and believed in him. And look at verse 46. But some of, the, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus had done. That he's raised, he raised a man from the dead. Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees bowed down and worshiped him as obviously king and God on the earth. (laughs) No, that's not what they did. They convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, then all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. Do you see that? They want to be subjugated to Rome. They don't want anything to change. Jesus is performing signs that say he really is the Messiah, but they don't want a Messiah. They want things exactly as they are. They don't want better. They want what they have. They like their prominent seats in the synagogues, they like their religious authority, they like being called rabbi by men. They're not concerned with truth any more than the pagans are. These religious leaders aren't. You see that? They preferred the comfort of maintaining what was over the uncertainty of something God himself had promised was much better. A, pessimist, a pessimistic eschatology is nothing new. You see that? They, were, they, they didn't believe that anything was ever going to really be better. You think about the atrocities that were in the Roman Empire. It was so wicked. So many awful things going on. But they're, they're fine with the wickedness all around them. They're not eager for Jesus to come and fix it all. Those who embrace this form of cultural engagement maintain the fetal position as their preferred posture, and they have that in common with this council of Pharisees. They don't want to actually fight for anything, proclaim anything, to say that Jesus is Lord and to call people to submit to him. No. To say that Yahweh is Lord. No. They're fine exactly where they are. Pick up at verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who is the high priest, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish They thought he's saying that, asked Caiaphas, but actually look at verse 51. He did not say that on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. God had a plan behind all this. They think he's one of them just saying, hey, we got to kill him so that our nation can be, but God is speaking through him. We've got to kill him so that all the world can be saved by this Jesus figure. He can gain a universal dominance. In chapter 12, verse 1 through 8, I'm not going to read it, but Mary anoints Jesus for burial. Then in 12, 17, 41, pick up with me. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify about Jesus. Do you think how many of you would be able to stop testifying about Jesus if you saw him raise somebody from the dead? I think I'd talk about it for, I don't know, a good hour or two, don't you? Or a day or two, or a week or two, or for the rest of my life. He raised a man from the dead that had been dead for four days. Yeah, they're still talking about it. And for this reason also the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. Look at verse 19 again. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone out after him. And now there were certain Greeks among those who were going to worship at the feast. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. You see the Jewish leaders rejecting Jesus, and the Greeks actually wanting to see Jesus. And Jesus interprets that as something that the end is very close Peter came and told Andrew and Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus and Jesus said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you that unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Once again, the purpose of God is that I die. The Son of Man has to die here in order to accomplish his mission so that I can produce much fruit in the whole world. This is a necessary thing that God has ordained. Do you all see this? Sovereignty of God over all this. Remember this title, "Son of Man." Also, it's not some cool title that Jesus thought up for himself. It comes from directly from the Old Testament. The Son of Man is going to be glorified. What's that mean? He says it's through his death, but through in the Old Testament, we where did we who remembers where we saw that in the Old Testament? Daniel seven nine through fourteen. I want to have you turn there with me, just because. When they heard the Son of Man, we we hear Son of Man, we think a human, just a mere human, Son of Man. They couldn't have helped but think of divinity, dominion, and judgment. Jesus is claiming much more than just being another man. Daniel 7, 9 through 14. Jesus understood who he was, the mission he was coming to fulfill, and what he was going to accomplish with his life. I kept looking... Until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending to this Ancient of Days, God Himself, and myriads upon myriads were standing before Him. The court sat, and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn were speaking. This speaks of human leaders, just mere human authorities. And I kept looking until the beast was slain and the body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, all the nations, their dominion were taken away. But an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. And I kept looking in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came to the ancient of days. That some man would come before the ancient of days. The nations are being judged by this ancient of days. And this, this one man would come and be granted, was presented to him, was granted dominion, glory, and a kingdom. That all the people's nations of, and every man of every language might serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which cannot be destroyed that's the son of man he's saying the son of man is going to be glorified how's it going to happen he's going to die but he's not going to stay dead he's going to raise he's going to be the one that ascends into the heavens and gains the universal dominion over not just the Jews but over the whole earth of all of the nations that hate him do you see that? That's, what Jesus is, that's who Jesus is claiming to be. That through his death he'll accomplish what was prophesied in Daniel 7. He, not Caesar, is a figure of universal authority and sovereignty. And it's in accordance with that vision and its context of judgment that, that Jesus is speaking. Look at uh, 7, you're still in Daniel. Look at 7, 21 and 22. I kept looking, and that horn was raging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Guys, that's our future. That's the future for the people of God. Do you think we're just going to get ran over forever? What a depressing way to think. We're always just going to lose. That's not what the Bible says. We are going to take possession of the kingdom, the whole world. Blessed are the meek, for they shall... It's ours. Coming soon to a city near you. The Son of Man is executing judgment, standing in the place of the divine judge himself and taking dominion over the whole world. Now turn back to John 12 again to John 12, 27, where we left off. And Jesus says, My soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? What am I going to say? He knows he's about to die. He knows how horrific it's going to be. He knows exactly what's going to go down. He says, What shall I say? Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? It's a rhetorical question, and the answer is absolutely not. Why? But, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. It reminds you of, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. You purpose this, God, and this is my lot. This is what you have sovereignly appointed in all of this. Yes, I'm going to suffer for a little bit here on a cross, but I'm not going to stay dead, and I trust you, Father. What's going on? And a voice came out of the heavens in front of these people and said, I have glorified it and will glorify it. And the crowd of people who stood by and heard it, they said, they hear a voice out of the heavens and they say, it thundered. And some were saying an angel has spoken to him. Nobody's saying God's speaking to him out of the heavens. Does that sound familiar? Show us a sign from heaven, the scribes and Pharisees said, then we'll believe you. This happens in John 12 and they say, oh, it thundered. Remember I told you that if the stars arranged in the sky and said Jesus is Lord, that most secularists who don't want a God would say, isn't it strange that the the stars arranged themselves like that? a voice out of the heavens. Oh, it thundered. Oh, all the prophecies and all the Old Testament were fulfilled in the person and life of Christ. Oh, isn't that neat and interesting? Doesn't mean anything. Who says Jesus is Lord? A skeptic doesn't believe because a skeptic doesn't want to believe. Not because there's no evidence. You see that here. Pick up at verse 30. And Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for yours. Now judgment is upon the world. But because they're going to kill Jesus despite all the signs, despite his raising Lazarus from the dead, despite the voice coming out of the heavens, despite all of this, they're going to still kill Jesus. And he's saying that's going to be judgment on the whole world. And the ruler of this world will be cast out. And... If I am lifted up, then I will draw all men to myself. There's a change that took place after in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Jesus bought the field. Remember that from the parabolic discourse? He purchased the whole world. He, this was all God's plan, but it wasn't just God's plan so he could beat up on his son. It was so he could give him his inheritance, which was all the nations. So he could be the Daniel 7 son of man who had universal authority over all things. Wonder why depression is rampant these days? It's because nobody Christians are depressed all the time. Why? Because some bad doctor who meant well told them his kingdom's not of this world and there's no hope and everything's just going to get worse and worse. No, it's not. It's not. We're conquerors. Jesus bought the field. The world is not under the sway of the evil. When you say, well, why is evil raging? Because it's given to them for, for a little while. Remember from Daniel 7? They, they have a little while. He, get, he gives them a leash to give them the opportunity to repent, to finish his work, to draw his people to himself. Yeah, but in the end, the kingdom is delivered to the saints. Us. We get it. The strong man has been bound. The ruler of this world has been cast out. The path has been cleared for the mustard seed of the kingdom to become the largest tree in the garden. The leaven of the kingdom has been planted in the lump and the leaven will be spread throughout the whole loaf. Mark it down. And now at last, here's our phrase again from 1832 in 1233. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death which he would die. Jesus knew exactly how he was going to die, that the Jews would deliver him to the Romans and that they would crucify him. It even says it directly in Luke 18, 31 through 33. We're going up to Jerusalem, he tells the disciples, and all things which were written through the prophets about the Son of Man... Here's that title again. Will be accomplished for he will be handed over to the Gentiles and be mocked and mistreated and spat upon and they'll scourge him and they'll kill him. But on the third day he'll rise again. Jesus knew it was coming. You know why? Because he knew his Bible. Guys, I emphasize it every week. It's important you know your Bible. I just, I just don't have a whole lot of faith. I just don't know if I believe or not. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing comes by the Word of God. You don't believe because you don't know your Bible. You don't want to know, so you don't read the Bible. If you knew the Bible, you'd believe. Unless you're just a rebel who doesn't want to. Because then, it doesn't matter what happens, it can speak out of the heavens and you'll still say it's thunder. But if you come as one that God is drawing and has lifted the rebellion and the bias from your eyes, you'll believe if you get in this axiomatic, self-proving word of God. Jesus knew what was coming for him. He knew it was all under the sovereign rule of God. Psalm twenty-two sixteen 16 talks about, it's a messianic psalm, and it says, dogs have surrounded me. What are dogs again? What do they call the Gentiles? Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers have encompassed me. They pierced my hands and feet. He knew Romans were the, the, were the nation that was allowed to do crucifixions. He knew the Romans have to kill me because my hands and my feet have to be pierced. I have to die that gruesome death. But he knew it was coming. That's why he was able to tell everybody exactly what was coming. Because he'd read the Bible and he knew it all testified to what was going to happen to the Son of Man in order for him to gain his kingdom, to gain his authority over the whole world. Pick up in John 12, 34. The crowd then answered him, We have a law that Christ is to remain. We've heard out of the law that Christ is to remain forever. And they know that Jesus is claiming to be the Christ. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who's this Son of Man? Okay, so you're going to leave, but you're the Christ. You make your mind up, Jesus. And Jesus said to them, For a little longer the light is among you. While you walk, you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and he hid himself. But though he had performed many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet that said, Lord, who has believed our report, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they wouldn't see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted. And I healed them. In order for Jesus to die on the cross, they had to be blinded, didn't they? In order for him to gain all the kingdoms, he, they had to be blinded. They had to betray him. They had to reject the stone that, that God had ordained to be the chief cornerstone, didn't they? He had to die on the cross in order for any of us to have atonement for any of our sins, didn't they? So that's what was going to happen. We pick up, though, and back to uh, John 18. I know we're jumping around a little, but are you seeing what we're doing here? Are you able to follow and track? Good. We're back to John 18 to get back to how we are to understand our initial verse. And we're looking now at the subjugation of all nations to King Jesus. Jesus questioned, is questioned here by the Roman governor Pilate in verse 33. Therefore Pilate entered into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers the question with a question. Jesus answered and said, Are you saying this by your own initiative or did others tell you about me? What is Jesus asking here? He's saying, Are you wanting to submit to my authority or are you in just investigating a, th- a claim that you've heard about me? Why are you asking? That's, that's what's going on here. Why, why are you asking? I, before I decide whether I'm going to answer you or not, let me ask you a question. Are you wanting to submit to my reign and my rule? Or to just hear something about me and you're trying to have me on trial? And then Pilate responds. And he answers the question in verse 35. Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? What's Pilate's point? What do I care if you're the king of the Jews or if you're a peasant of the Jews? I don't care which one you are. Either way, you're still beneath me. Do you see it? It doesn't matter whether you're the king of the Jews or a peasant among the Jews. You're still just a Jew and I'm a Roman. I'm above you either way. He answers the question. He don't want to know of his own initiative. He's not wanting to submit. He's investigating a claim. Your nation, your people have brought you to me for me to judge you. And that's where we get this often misinterpreted text in verse 36. There's the context. But Jesus answered and said, My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not a... if my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting that i wouldn 't have even been handed over to the Jews, but as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Let me assure you that Jesus preferred title in the Bible in all the Gospels is what the Son of man, how many times do you call himself that over a hundred times in the Gospel, he calls himself this daniel seven son of man figure. Let me assure you he 's not denying daniel seven he 's not saying that uh, he's not denying that the son, one like the Son of Man himself would come to the Ancient of Days and be prevented, presented before Him, and that Him would be given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, and that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve Him. That His dominion would be an everlasting dominion which would not pass away, and His kingdom would be one which would not be destroyed. He's not denying that. That's not what's happening. So, what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, "I'm on orders from a higher authority, not of this world." No, you're thinking, you're Rome, and I'm a Jew? And you're thinking, why do I care? I'm not a Jew, am I? No, my kingdom's not of this world. It's above Rome. It's bigger than anything you've ever imagined, anything you can fathom, Pilate. He has a larger jurisdiction than merely the Jews. He's the Son of God. Everything that's happening is according to God's plan. It's all the Father's mission. He did not have his servants to fight to keep him from being handed over to the Jews. Why? Because that was the Father's purpose for him. We see that every time that the cross is mentioned in John. Do you remember in John 12, 25 again? Twelve twenty-seven. 27... My soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But, no, no, no. For this purpose I came... To this hour, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of the heavens. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Then now judgment is coming on. He knows this is the path that God has for him. This is the sovereign purpose of God for his life. I'm on charges from God Almighty from the ancient of days to come to submit to this ill treatment, to be rejected by the Jews, to be delivered over to you, to be killed, but I will still be the judge even if you kill me that's what's happening. You see it again in John 8:28 through 29. Jesus said, "When you lift up the son of man, Then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing by my own authority, but I speak just what the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Son of man language, I'm on mission from God. I'm speaking exactly what God told me to do, accomplishing exactly the plan that this kingdom that is outside this world has purposed for me. The plan is for me to live a perfect life, die a sacrificial death and rise from the dead. I'm going to do it. So yeah, I'm standing before you, Pilate, but my kingdom's higher than yours still. That's what's happening. After Jesus' mission is accomplished, he'd stand before the Ancient of Days as the sinless man who would have proven his lordship and to him would be given the dominion, the glory, and the kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. You also see it in one of the most famous verses in the Bible when you read before and after it and not just for God so loved the world. All the way back in John 3. You know 16, 13, and 17 matter too. John three thirteen. No one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus was sent. He existed before his birth, unlike the rest of us. Before his conception, Jesus is eternal. He came from heaven, born of a virgin, became a man, descended from the heavens, and he would ascend back into the heavens after his death and and resurrection to stand before the Ancient of Days. That's what it's saying in John 3. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up on the cross... So that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. Whoever, not just the Jews, because it's a universal dominion for all the nations. Whoever believes in him, for God so loved the world, not just the Jews, that whoever believes upon him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge it. Not that time. But that the world might be saved through him. He came to accomplish a mission from the Father that included his sacrificial death. It's all the plan of God. Then you get a, a clarifying follow-up question and answer in verse 37. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say correctly that I'm king. For this I have been born, for I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Anybody know the word for testify here in verse 37? Anybody? Pop up if you do. Somebody here is going to know it. Martyrio. Anybody know what word we get from that? Martyr. I'm testifying to the truth. I'm going to stand on the truth to the point of being killed for the truth. It's my purpose. I'm a king that's going, you don't know what truth is, Pilate? You think the law is just arbitrary? No, I'm going to proclaim the very law of God. Do these miracles be rejected and in love submit myself to the will of the Father to redeem all you wretches? Because that's what love does, which is the fulfillment of the law. I will lay my life down, martyrio, for the truth and everyone, not just the Jews... Who is of the truth hears my voice. Once again, he's saying, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate, yeah, I'm a king. And I'm bearing witness of a universal truth that is rooted in the character and nature of God. And you can be part of my kingdom if you'll just hear the truth. Not just the Jews. It's not just the king of the Jews. Jesus is the king of a people who will hear his voice. The role of rulers is to uphold truth and justice. Without an absolute standard of truth, justice cannot be upheld. The Messiah, the Son of David, the promised coming King of the Jews, would do that. That's actually what the Old Testament says he'll do. Jeremiah 33, 15. In those days, at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth and he will execute justice and righteousness on the earth. That was his job. Isaiah 11, 1 through 2, A shoot will spring from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bring forth fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. But then look at Pilate's misunderstanding in verse 38. (coughs) Pilate said to him, What is truth? Mm. Anyone who hears my truth, anyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate says, what is truth? He denies the existence of truth. When he had said that, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release to you you the king of the Jews? So they cried out again saying, not this man but Barabbas. Barabbas was a robber. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. Guys, I don't even want to go into what a scourging was, but let me tell you, it ain't just a little bit of a whipping. It ain't a little bit of a a switching. It ain't a couple of. It ain't bending the ruler back and hitting you on the wrist. It's it's bad news. Pilate, who says he finds no fault in him, scourged him. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, a purple robe on him, began to come up to him and say, "Hail, King of the Jews!" and smack him in the face. Pilate came out again and said, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you that you might know that I find no guilt in him. Isn't that ironic? And Jesus then comes out beat half to death, wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe. And Pilate said, Behold the man. And when the chief priests and officers saw it, Pilate thought, Maybe that will satisfy him. They said, No, no. Crucify him crucify him. And Pilate said, take him yourself and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. So what is Pilate's misunderstanding? Well, first he questioned the existence of truth. Like all honest secularists, they admitted they have no basis for a claim of truth. But also he misunderstood Jesus. He seems to have thought that Jesus was just claiming a spiritual kingdom like many people that misunderstand what's going on here today, I think. Plato was already a big thing by that time. It was already this dualism, this spirit um, flesh divide, the earthly and the spiritual divide was already big at that time. Gnosticism flowed out of it in the early church. Pilate seems to have seen Jesus as a harmless moral teacher whose worst crime was perhaps being an idealistic crackpot. Probably what he thought about him. And Pilate violated his own conscience. I'll say this: A truthless man is a dangerous man. Somebody that doesn't believe there's an absolute standard of right and wrong is a dangerous man. Such a man can have no valor. They don't operate off of conviction. They can only act based off of what seems most advantageous to them in the moment. Apart from truth, a man is reduced to pragmatism. And a pragmatist does what works. And what works has no basis in right or wrong has basis in what accomplishes what I'm wanting to accomplish. They won't even obey their own consciences. Notice, I've already pointed this out, but in 1838, what did, what did uh, Pilate say? I find no guilt in him. And in 1906, again, take him and uh, yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. Despite the fact that he alleges, I find no guilt in him, he had him severely beaten. And despite the fact that he says, I find no guilt in him, he said, I'll let you kill him. Man, a truthless man's a dangerous man, isn't he? I find no guilt in him. Let's beat the snot out of him so this mob will shut up. That'll make my day easier. I find no guilt in him. Ah, go ahead and kill him. What's it matter? It's just one man. It makes my day easier. Oh, that baby that God conceived, oh, it's going to be an inconvenience. I might not be able to go to college. Go ahead and kill it. It'll make my life easier. A truthless person is a dangerous person. They're a murderous person, if it comes down to it. They're a thieving person, if it comes down to it. What is truth? When you believe what is truth, you do whatever you can get away with. But where does it get real for Pilate? Look at 19.7. And the Jews answered and said, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be... Uh Uh-oh. He made him out... What's verse 7 say? He made himself out to be the Son of God. Do you remember Caesar Augustus' title? Divinus... Julius Phileas, or the son of the divine Julius, sometimes they shortened it to Divus Phileas, which means the son of God. Caesar is the son of God, but Jesus has made himself out to be the son of God. Jesus made himself out to be the son of God in verse 7, which is why we see when Pilate heard that statement, he became even more afraid. He didn't become afraid because he's scared of God. I used to read that and think that. Oh, when he heard that Jesus made himself out to be the Son of God, Pilate's like, oh no, God's going to get me. No, no, no. He heard that and he thought, oh no, if I don't do something about this, Caesar's going to get me. He was a very consistent secularist. Oh, he's not just claiming to be some religious teacher and some metaphorical king. He's making him even if he's just saying the words and don't mean it, he's saying he's the son of God. If this gets back to Caesar, that this guy is claiming to be the king of the Jews and the Son of God, a divine figure who has absolute authority, who is higher or on par with Caesar, if it gets back to Caesar and I've not done anything about it, I'll be in trouble with Caesar. One last question, so he goes back to Jesus. He entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? Jesus didn't give him any answer. You think? Of course he didn't give him any answer. He had just seen Pilate's character, or lack thereof. He heard Pilate say he found no guilt in him, but then still let him be beaten. He heard him say, I find no guilt in him, but I'm going to let him be killed. He he knew Pilate didn't believe the truth. He knew he wasn't saying of his own initiative. He was uh, arguing the king of the Jews and wanting to submit. He knew who Pilate was, so he just sat there. not going to waste his breath. Pilate was the kind of man that if a voice came out of the heavens and said, this is the Son of God, he would have said it thundered. And then questions 2 through 4 in this last questioning. Not real questions, but rhetorical claims. Rhetorical questions claiming Pilate's authority over Jesus. Listen at it. So Pilate said to him, You don't speak to me. There's almost a how dare you or how stupid are you. I don't know which one it is. Probably a mix of the two. You don't speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you or I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered and said, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin this over me you'd have no except it was granted to you from above or from heaven. It's not delegate. Your authority isn't just delegated from your superior's Rome, who you think are over me. No, God has ordained that you would have this lot, this charge that you would be over me right now temporarily and that's why because it's in line with the Father's plan for me to go through this and to suffer and die at the hands of these dogs to have the the, be pierced in my hands and my feet to die for this people, for this nation and for the whole world. That's God gave you this position. You don't know very much, but you're just playing a, you're a cog in the wheel. Jesus knew that the king's heart is like the channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Since Pilate is placed where he's been placed, with peace to keep and limited knowledge of the situation, the greater sin rests with him that handed Jesus over. And who's that? Well, that refers to Caiaphas. The Jewish high priest. It can't mean Judas because Judas didn't hand Pilate over to the Jews. It's Caiaphas. The point is that Caiaphas, the high priest, who's in charge of the temple and maintained order as the recognized political head of the nation, had rejected Jesus with full knowledge of the Scriptures and knowing all of Jesus' miracles. Pilate wasn't there when Lazarus was raised from the dead. Caiaphas knew about it. And his response was, we've got to get rid of him or we're going to lose our nation under the Jews. Pilate didn't know all these, all these details. So, who had the greater sin, Caiaphas or Pilate? Jesus' point. These Jews who had more knowledge, who I've ministered to for these last three years and done all these signs and miracles for, and yet they all the way up to the high priest himself have rejected me. They have the greater sin. This doesn't mean that Pilate's excused, because if you have greater sin or lesser sin, you ever hear all sins are the same? What's this say? He who has delivered him over to you has the greater sin. So if somebody tells you that, they need to read their Bible. Not all sins are the same. They had the greater sin. I guess where they get that is one sin, don't matter what the sin is, you're still worthy of the judgment of God and you're still you're still not worthy of heaven, you're still worthy of hell. That I agree with. But there are degrees of sin and there's degrees of punishment the Bible tells us, doesn't it? That doesn't mean the Jews, but it does mean here that the Jews are even more guilty and that the rejection of the offer of the kingdom to the Jews meant that the whole world would be purchased by Christ through his death and that there would be a universal everlasting dominion. Let's see now how this all ends up. We're, we're in the home stretch. The Jews get Jesus' point better than Pilate does. Verse 12, As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release Jesus. Again, Pilate does not see Jesus as a political threat. He's wanting to just let the little crackpot religion guy go. He's like, like, how serious can we take this guy that's already been arrested by his own people, we've beat him within an inch of his life, scourged him, spit on him, beat him, put a crown on him. He's done nothing. His people have done nothing. This is not a real threat. He's wanting to just let him go. But the Jews cried out saying, if you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar... Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. He's still not saying, My king, is he? Behold your king. So they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. The stone which the builders rejected with the high priest himself as their representative had rejected Jesus as their king and embraced instead pagans to rule over them. But inadvertently, they're offering Jesus as the Lamb of God. The high priest ends up offering the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. Jesus offers himself, and Caiaphas, the actual functional high priest at that time, offers Jesus over, who ends up being our sacrificial lamb. Back to 12, 49 through 53, you don't have to turn there, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, do you you not take into account that It is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish." Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied. God put those words in his mouth that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. That he's going to get a people, a kingdom. That's that Daniel 7 language, isn't it? That all the people, all the tribes, all the nations, under all the sun, over, under everything, that he would be given a universal dominion over all of that. Because that was the plan of God. By rejecting him as king and offering him as, land, as a lamb, God exalted him to the loftiest of heights. And look how John interprets the resurrection. Turn to John 20 30-31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Remember, why did I preach this? Last week's confession. What was Peter's confession? Thou art the Christ, the head of the Jewish nation, the Son of the living God over Caesar himself, that we would know that Jesus is the truth incarnate, that he is the absolute authority over everything. That his ways are true and that's why at the end of Matthew we get all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of whom? Of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit of, of all the nations, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever he taught. Why? Because it's not your law that we're teaching No individual nation's law. Well, that's just the law. That's the law they made here. That's the law they made there. We submit to a greater law as Christians. Whatsoever Jesus taught, that you teach them, observe all things whatsoever I taught you, that some laws are wicked, and we as Christians, we stand in disobedience to those laws under the law of Christ, saying, shall I obey men? Or shall I obey God? You'll see this paradigm throughout the New Testament. I probably need to stop, though. But Romans 1, throw this one out there. Paul, a bond servant of Christ, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh, but declared to be the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, that he's declared to be the Son of God, a universal authoritative figure because he rose from the dead. He was lifted up, and if he's lifted up, he would draw all men to himself. And that's what it says in verse 5 of Romans 1. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Why? To bring about obedience of faith among the Gentiles, all the nation, for his name's sake. We've forgotten who we are as Christians. We preach as if we're the beat-whipped little puppies hoping that we can beg people into the kingdom instead of saying God has commanded men everywhere to repent because God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man who he has appointed, having given proof to all men by raising him from the dead. We've forgotten that we have the authority of heaven behind our words, that we're not, we're not beaten. We're more than conquerors. We've forgotten... What we're supposed to do as Christians, because well-meaning Christians, take a little verse, like verse 36 in John 18. Well, my kingdom's not of this world. We should not engage the culture. We shouldn't try to change anything. We shouldn't, we shouldn't impose our views on anyone else. We should just have their views imposed on us. That's not what the Scriptures say at all. One of my friends, Andrew Sandlin... He said, when the church becomes just another interest group in modern secular culture, it's worth, worse than worthless. The faithful church, like the faithful family, is an aggressive, rival, combative society in a contra-Christian culture. Yeah, indeed. Guys, what do we have in Christ? We have the Holy Spirit of the living God living within us. That we are clothed with power from on on high. The word for power, exousia, power, authority from on high. We've got to reclaim what we've lost by believing lies. The lies have consequences even if they're well-meaning. Let's return to a fully-orbed faith with all the authority of heaven behind us. Kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your sovereignty over the life of Christ that you ordained that you would allow your Son to live a perfect life and to die a sacrificial death for us, that you would be our great high priest taking away our sins, that we are sinners, we are guilty, we are worthy of punishment, but Jesus took our punishment, that he is our Lamb. We rejoice that the church has not lost that truth, that it's still proclaimed regularly, but Lord, we pray that you'll help us to reclaim that truth that you were also raised as our King. You are our priest and you are our king. Lord, let us once again teach the nations to submit to you. Let us believe that you are going to deliver your people, that you're going to raise us up, that you're going to to take care of us and cause your kingdom to spread throughout the earth like you've promised throughout your scriptures. Lord, let us not grow weary in well-doing. Let us continue believing you, believing your promises. Even when things don't go well, it's not everything will go perfectly, but the end result, we believe you will accomplish what you've said. Give us faith to believe that. Let us have the, the, the comfort of the hope of faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.